turn to the book of Luke, chapter number 12 in your Bible. Luke 12. And as soon as you find it, go to the Gospel of Matthew and uh, go to chapter 10. Luke 12 and Matthew 10. We have two passages today that we'll read together. Luke chapter 12 and verse 4. I say unto you, my friends, be not afraid of them that kill the body, and after that have no more power or have no more that they can do. That would be COVID, wouldn't it? Can kill the body, but it can't go any further than that. But the Lord says, I forewarn you whom you shall fear. Fear him which after he hath killed hath power to cast into hell. Only one can do that, of course, that would be God himself. Yea, I say unto you, fear him, fear the Lord. Are not five sparrows sold for two farthings? And not one of them is forgotten before God. But even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. And then Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10 is the same context, essentially. Uh, in verse 28, he talks about fearing not those who kill the body. But we go to verse 29, and our Lord said, are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? And one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear ye not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Now, if you'll note the, the text there, it talks about a farthing. A farthing is a small copper coin that was used in those days. It was the least valuable of the coins except for a mite, and it was a tiny little thing. It would be equivalent to our penny today or uh, something along that line. And then you will notice here in verse number 29, our Lord asked a question. Are not two sparrows sold for one farthing, one little copper coin? Then I go back to Luke chapter 12 and to verse 6. Are not five sparrows sold for two farthings? And the subject today is the fifth sparrow, the fifth sparrow. You may be seated. <clears throat> Can you turn on your imagination here for a few minutes? And I want you to imagine and think with me about visiting an ancient Middle Eastern market somewhere over in Israel or in one of the Middle Eastern countries. And it looks like one of our flea market type things, a little booths end-to-end end that people would go to, and you could buy anything you wanted, implements for your kitchen, farm equipment, cl items of clothing, or you could buy uh, pharmaceuticals of the type that they used, and most, of, most importantly, food items. And because of the lack of refrigeration and so on those days, for the most part, people would go to the market almost every day, if not every day, and on this particular day, I want you to imagine with me a little lady, an old woman, very, very poorly dressed, uh, 
And the little woman approaches the meat seller's stall that day. She looks at the beef on one end. It's too expensive. She can't afford that. She goes down. She looks at the, there's the lamb, the mutton. And she goes to the next stall. There's the fish. Boy, she'd love to have a fish, but fish are beyond her budget too. And she goes to the next counter. It's piled up with little birds, with sparrows. There's a whole heap of them there for sale that day at the meat market. And so the little woman, as she does almost every day, takes her handkerchief and she's knotted up her money in it. It serves as her purse. And she unties the knot. She takes out two of those little tiny copper coins, the farthings. She lays them down on the counter, looks at the proprietor, and she says, two sparrows for a farthing. She's laid down two farthings, so he reaches into the pile of birds. He lays four of them down on the counter in front of her. The little woman is so poor, she's marginally hungry most of the time. And so she looks at the proprietor, and this is a little routine because, of course, you always negotiate at those markets. You always see if you can't get a little better deal. And so she looks at the proprietor, and she said, can you do a little better today? And he takes one more bird, and he lays it over with the four that she has, the fifth sparrow. And he says to her, five, spar five sparrows for two farthings. The fifth sparrow, that's our subject today. The fifth sparrow is the quantity discount, I guess you would say, on this day. And this man is a good businessman, and she's a regular customer. She comes every day. She lives in the neighborhood. And he's, he's thinking in his mind as he hands her that sparrow, better to give up one little sparrow that's almost worthless anyhow we're selling these things, too, for one farthing. So better to give her one as a little bonus for being a good customer than to disappoint her and the old lady doesn't have anything. She's probably hungry anyhow. Five sparrows for two farthings. Jesus knew about this and referenced it here. And so I want to speak to you about that fifth sparrow for a few moments this morning. Number one, I want you to see the insignificance of the fifth sparrow. You see, in ancient times, sparrows were a primary source of protein for people. And they'd take these great nets, and they would spread them out and, uh, with stakes in the ground, and they would be 12, 15, 20 feet high. They'd put some oats, or they would put some wheat or something like that that would attract the birds. They'd sprinkle it on the ground nearby, and the birds would come in great clouds. You couldn't hardly see for them. A great, great crowd of, of sparrows in the sky. You've seen birds like that, flock, huge flocks of them. And they would fly into those nets, and they would fall, and these merchants would pick them up. And uh, that's, that doesn't sound very tasty to us. <laughs> I never have looked at a sparrow and thought, boy, I'd like to have a piece of you today. I never have thought that, have you? But, you know, I, I was reading about sparrows, and they were a primary source of food even in England up until 
World War I, and people used to make sparrow pie. I like key lime better, but I, you know, sparrow pie. <laughs> and they said, if you would go to an expensive restaurant in London during those days, you could buy a sparrow pie with a hundred sparrows in it. They guarantee you the a hundred of them, and they cooked it up with other uh, items of, to flavor the sparrows, and it was really very good. And the whole family could eat out of the, out of the sparrow pie. And so uh, these little sparrows were everywhere in those days, more of them than we even see or know today. And they were the cheapest meat available, the food of the very, very poor. And so our Lord knew that. Probably he had eaten sparrow. And in Matthew 10 and 29, he says, Are not two sparrows sold for one farthing? They're not very expensive because they're so plentiful. They're not significant to us. They're just a little bit of protein, a couple of bites per sparrow. And they would dress them, and they would put them on a, on a wire or something and hold them over the fire and roast them like a kebab or however they might eat them. And uh, that was the food of the poor people. But in Luke chapter 12, he says something very interesting. He says, are not five sparrows sold for two farthings? In other words, the fifth one is a bonus. They're so insignificant, we can toss one more and more on the pile, and it really won't cost us a whole lot. The fifth sparrow, so insignificant, he's free if you buy four more. But notice what it says in Luke 12 and 6 at the end of it. But it says, not one of them is forgotten of God. Not one of them is forgotten of God. God is interested in that fifth sparrow, that insignificant, worthless almost person or being that he created. Then in chapter 12 and verse 7, look at the end of it. Fear not, therefore, because you are of more value than many sparrows. And so Christ compares our worth to that of the sparrows, and he says, you are of so much more value in God's eyes than are the many sparrows that he even traces the fall of the one. And so the fifth sparrow is known of God. The fifth sparrow is known of God. You know, for 52 years I've been preaching, and I've read and read through the years and done all the research that I could trying to find a way to describe the greatness of God. And of course, being a man and finite in my being and in my in intelligence, I, I just never have felt like that I could describe the greatness of the, uh, the, the power, the magnitude of God, I never felt like I've done a good job of it. Every time I preached on it after I walked away, I thought, well, I made my try again, but I really didn't describe God in His fullness, in His majesty, in His bigness, His immensity, His, his vastness. I just, I, I don't know how you do that as a human being. You try to describe God I always come back usually to the universe itself. It's the only thing big enough to adequately compare to God. And I think about what we've learned about the universe even in my lifetime. 
The ancients, of course, had to look at the sky with their, just with their eyes, eyesight only. And Ptolemy, the Greek philosopher, said he had been out studying the heavens, and he had looked at the heavens, and there were 1,025 stars. He knew that, and he wrote about them. And a few years later, he came back and said, I was wrong. There's 1,027. <laughs> well, since then, we invented the telescope, and since then, we know that there's an infinitude of stars. It's beyond our capacity to even calculate and to know. And then we came and invented the modern-day telescope. And those big telescopes is out there on the mountains of Mount Palomar in California. And I think it's about 10 feet across the lens of that thing. And it can see so far into space. It can see things that we never, ever dreamed about before. And those telescopes reach so far into space that we even in our lifetime had to create a whole new unit of measuring distance to calculate the distances, the vast distances of, of space. And so we came up with a new measurement. It's called a light year. And that's only happened within some of our lifetimes. Now, a light year is the distance that light travels at 186,000 miles per second. Did you get that in one second, 186,000 miles? The speed of light, we call it. And that means that in one year, light traveling at 186,000 miles per second is going to travel just a little bit shy of 6 trillion, with a T, 6 trillion miles, a beam of light. If somehow I could stand on the equator, the largest place on the earth, or the, where the earth is the largest, if I could stand on the equator and I could take a light or a flashlight that was so powerful it could send a beam of light and it would go around the world, in one second that beam of light at the speed of light would go around the world seven and a half times. I call that moving on. I call that fast with all capital letters, don't you? I read that the, it takes eight minutes for the beam of light that leaves the sun to get to the earth. Eight minutes. So when you sunbathe, you're getting, you're getting your suntan by what happened eight minutes ago on the, on the moon or on the sun. It's incredible when you think about this. 93 million miles of distance that that light beam travels over in only eight minutes. From one side of the Milky Way, our galaxy, to the other, it takes 200,000 light years for a beam of light to cross the Milky Way. Now, you know, once you start thinking in those kinds of terms, I don't know how you feel. It's just like my brain sort of goes like this and says, uh, you can't go any further. You can't even consider that. It's incredible. But it, there was a God who made this. There is a God who made this. And he is our God. And, you know, we try to measure him by these big, big, vast uh, measurements of space, light years, and so on. But wait a minute, you also measure God not only by the gigantic, you measure God by the small. 
and the insignificant as well. And when I began to think about that, I thought, of course, that sparrow, God, who made this vast universe, that same God watches over every single sparrow. And when that sparrow falls to the ground, assuming the sparrow's dying or dead, God knows about that sparrow. In fact, Jesus went further and he said, he knows the number of uh, hairs in your head. They're numbered. Honestly, that doesn't, you don't have to count too high with some of us. But um, I know that uh, I read that the average man, the average middle-aged man has about 100,000 hairs in his head. And if he grows a beard, there'll be about 30,000 in his beard. Now, mine won't quite reach that proportion, but, uh, but whatever that number is, I promise you the Lord knows what it is. Can you imagine a God who is so great he knows the number of hairs in your head? He sees the fall of a sparrow. I was reading about it. I was trying to think of illustrations that would help you get the point of God knowing every insignificant thing about us. And I came up with the idea of the atom. Of course, the atom is the smallest thing we know about. The atom is, we didn't even know about atoms until what, 100 years ago, 90 years ago, something like that. And then we began to discover them. Now we have electron microscopes that can, we can actually see them. And I was trying to find out how big or how small, I guess I should say, an atom is. And the thing I got from the Encyclopedia Britannica was if you take a sheet of paper and you could stack up vertically about 100 average size atoms, just stack them up like BBs, only you're getting it, stacking them in a vertical column, it would take 100 atoms to make a column the thickness of that piece of paper. <laughs> Y'all don't act impressed at all here. I, really? I mean, that is something, isn't it? A hundred thousand atoms to make a thickness, a, a column as high as one sheet of paper. And our God is the creator of all that. That shows his greatness just as much as the immensity of space when you begin to think about it, doesn't it? I know the arguments are about five major arguments for the existence of God that uh, theologians can all quote to you. To me, you don't need but one, and it's what's called the cosmological argument, a whole mouthful, but cosmological argument, the argument in regard to the cosmos itself. And the argument goes like this. Everything that exists has a cause for its existence. There's not anything that's uncaused. Everything that exists has a cause. The universe exists, whether it's space or sparrows or atoms. Whatever exists has a cause. The universe exists. Therefore, the universe has a cause for its existence. And you begin to look through the telescope and the microscope and you begin to think about and you begin to study the creation of God. You see the order, that atom that it takes 100,000 of them in a stack to make one sheet of paper in height. 
that little atom, each one of them is organized just almost like our solar system. And it has a nucleus, and the nucleus has the protons, and circling around it are the electrons. And I can't remember the name of it. I'm sorry, but there's a name now for the gap between the nucleus and the orbit where the electrons are circling around, and the scientists know what that is. So this is a God who was interested in creating order and designed everything from the atom all the way to the galaxies in the heavens. And this is the God who looks and observes his creation. And he sees that fifth sparrow fall down to the ground, and he knows, and he cares. And then he says, and you're of more value than many of them, implying I know all about you, and I know what's going on in your life, and I care about you. Now, who are the fifth sparrows today? I described the fifth sparrow at the meat market. There are a lot of fifth sparrows that I don't want you to forget about. First of all, there's the unborn child, the fifth sparrow. You know, in America today, so many people don't even call them a baby. They're a fetus. They're a mass of cells growing in a mother's body. And so far in America, 60 million of them or more have had their life extinguished while they were in their mother's womb. The saddest, most tragic thing maybe that has ever happened in all of America, a veritable holocaust. And yet not many people want to talk about it, and certainly they don't want to think about it. And you take your petition to the legislators and it's not a big thing to them. They're more interested in fixing a pothole in front of somebody's house in too many cases than they are in saving the lives of those unborn. But I want to tell you, God knows about them. They're not a mass of cells to Him. They're not a fetal being to Him. They are persons that, though we may not consider them significant, Our Heavenly Father considers them significant. They're the fifth sparrow. There's the fifth sparrow of the children, the little children. I don't want you to forget them. They're insignificant to a lot of people today too. But I want to tell you that how much God values the little children. The very first command that God ever gave to mankind was not some great high moral thing. It was, I want you to Take a wife. I'm going to make her for you, Adam. And then I want you to be fruitful, and I want you to multiply, and I want you to replenish the earth because God loves little children. And God today values. Little children may be insignificant to so many adults and some of our big institutions, but they're not insignificant to God. Do you know... Why, how insignificant they are in America today, children. Do you understand that the birth rate in the United States right now is the lowest that it's been in 100 years? That the demographic experts tell us that we're not going to have enough people in some future generation to even make the wheels of the economy run. We're in trouble because we're not even replacing the number of people we have right now in the United States. 
It's not like that everywhere. There are places in the world that they view a child as the greatest asset, the greatest resource, the, the thing of greatest value that a family could have. And it's always been traditionally so, but in the United States of America, because of these philosophies that are so anti-God and anti-Bible, and there's so many of them, I don't even have time to go into them this morning, but we have chosen to believe that there are things more valuable than our children, and now we're, our, our nation is on a, a, a terrible course because we don't have enough children. The nation is growing rapidly older every single year if you calculate the average age of the entire country. And in America today, so many people view children as a burden. They're a burden and not a blessing. And I'll tell you something just as sad is a church that doesn't have any children. Man, I have preached in some, in some churches where everybody there was gray-haired and wrinkled, and I looked out over that congregation, and I couldn't help but think, where are the kids? Where are the teenagers? Where are the young couples in this church? Everybody here, it's like preaching in a nursing home. And in 20 years, you're not going to have a church, folks. Wake up. God loves the children. He said, suffer the little children to come unto me and never say, no, you can't go. Don't forbid them, for such is the kingdom of God. And children are the heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is God's reward to people. And yet the children in so much of American life today are the fifth sparrows. There used to be a Southern Baptist evangelist. His name was Homer Martinez. Homer Martinez had an older brother, and the older brother was named Angel. I think he pronounced it with a Spanish twist, but I don't know what that is. So. But Angel Martinez was a very famous Southern Baptist evangelist. I remember reading a couple of his books. But he had a younger brother, Homer, who was also an evangelist, not as well known, but a, a wonderful godly preacher of the gospel. And Homer tells the story that I read years ago that his family came here from uh, Mexico, I think, and they moved to Houston, Texas back in the 30s, I think. And uh, they went to the First Baptist Church of Houston, Texas, and they heard a wonderful gospel uh, message from a spirit-filled preacher there. And after a few Sundays, his mother and daddy They've been talking to the children about it, and they said, we're going to join that church, and uh, we need Christ in our family. And so family walked forward one Sunday, and they, they were not even saved people. Somebody led them to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then I think in a week or two, they introduced the family. They wanted to be baptized and join the church. And Homer said, I remember so vividly standing in that great church, all those hundreds and hundreds of people. And it was a long line formed, and the people began to come by to welcome the people who had been saved that day, as churches traditionally have done. And he said, people would come by, and they'd shake my daddy's hand, and then they'd shake my mother's hand, and they'd shake uh, an Angel's hand because he was a teenager at that time. And then they would come by, and they would look at me and say, hello, little fellow, and pat him on the head. He said, most of them passed by, and they didn't even notice me. And Homer Martinez said, you know what? 
I decided right then, every time I preached the gospel, I was not going to forget the children. I remember how I felt so insignificant that all those big, well-dressed people passed by, and they had time for mom and dad and my older brother, but not many of them had very much time for a little tiny boy. God values the children. Don't let them be the fifth sparrow. D.L. Moody preached one night. He went out and preached at a meeting and came home. Somebody said, well, how'd it go, Mr. Moody? He said, I had two and a half saved tonight. And they said, you mean you had two adults and a child? He said, no, I had two children and about a 45, 50-year-old man. He's already lived half his life. Two and a half, two kids and one adult. Mr. Moody had it figured out exactly right, didn't he? The children are not the fifth sparrow, but they are in so many people's minds. Fifth sparrow sometimes is the older man or the older woman, the old people. The world has forgotten them, and the world has pushed them aside. And uh, now that I are one, I kind of know, I, I tend to identify. And I go to the nursing home, and I say to the woman sitting there, the nurse at the desk, all these people being visited or people caring for them, Oh, no, sir. Some of them have families. Some of their families live right here in town. They haven't seen them in three months. And they just sit here by themselves. They're so lonely. All of their friends have gone on. They're forgotten people. The culture is a youth-oriented culture. The culture has pushed them aside, and they're of no value. They're insignificant to the world today. A couple of years ago, we needed somebody here on the staff to help me with pastoral care. We were making some changes, and I called Jeremy, Jeremy Roder, and he was working at a church in, in New York, and uh, I said, Jeremy, would you like to come back down and work with me? And we talked about it, and he said he felt the Lord was leading him this way to come back home, and he got here, and we sat down in my office, and I said, now, you're going to be doing our pastoral care. You're the pastoral care man, the director of pastoral care. And Jeremy, here's what I want. We got a lot of older people in our church. And you don't know those people like I know those people, but those people were here when it wasn't even respectable to go to the Florence Baptist Temple. <laughs> Back there in the theater building when people would say, you what? You go there? Those people were here, and they put their money in this church, and they put their time in this church, and they worked on bus routes, and they worked in Sunday school classes, and they prayed for this church, and they tithed when they didn't have much money. They put their life into this church, and now they're old. They can't even come all the time. What a crime. What a travesty it would be if we would forget them at this point in their life. And so we made a plan, and we've enlisted people, and you have helped us, people who are active and can do it. That Our goal is that twice every month, our members, we can't do it for everybody, but for our members, these people that have been a part of our church family, that twice a month somebody is going to push open the door, come into their room, 
knock on the door of their home if they're homebound, and we're going to say, look, we haven't forgotten you. You're not, you're not the fifth sparrow that's worthless and insignificant to us. We care about you. And we're going to go there, and we're going to pray with them, and we're going to touch them. And we're going to put our hand on their hand and on their shoulder, and we're going to comfort them, and we're going to say to them, look, you count to us. You're not insignificant. The old. The fifth sparrow is the sick, the people who are fighting fear, and they're lonely. I had to spend one night in the hospital recently for some tests. Thankfully, everything was okay, but... Boy, that's a lonely place. They're not only, you're not only lonely, you're bothered. I'm lonely, let me sleep. No, we got to take your temperature every 15 minutes here, you know. So it's a miserable existence. They're doing the best they can. I'm not criticizing the people, but don't they ever sleep in those places? And so the people who are sick, boy, that's lonely. And they're fighting fear. Is this pain that I feel, is this terminal? Or is it insignificant? I don't know. They haven't told me that yet. They say two more weeks of testing. And they get depressed. And does anybody care? And you know what they need? Just as much as they need medicine, they need that touch. And they need that prayer. And they need that comfort and that encouragement that somebody cares about them, that they're not the fifth sparrow. To me, the saddest thing about this COVID thing has been the isolation and the loneliness. It just so changes people. I see it in the church. I see it particularly with the sick people. And we've had people, we've had a couple of people die over this last year, members of our church, brothers in Christ, two, two men. And you know what was so sad to me? They said, the preacher can't come and see you and pray with you while you die. And they said, your family can't come. And one of our men died with his wife sitting in the waiting room. I think that that's a violation of natural law and natural rights. I think it is a natural right of humankind that they could have their family with them when they're dying. Figure out a way to do it. But it's so sad, these people so sick and dying and, no, and alone. Let's don't ever let that happen here. And then what about the poor? You know, I don't want to get jaded about the poor because I know all of the welfare programs and so on that we have in this country, and it really is hard to determine who is poor in America because I go to other countries of the world, and boy, it isn't hard to tell who's poor there. I'll tell you what. Poor there is really, really poor. It's self-evidently poor. But in America, you know, poor people, classified as poor people, they have food, they have housing, they have air conditioning, they have cell phones, they got televisions. And you begin to say, what is poor in this country? Are there any poor people in this country? But there is. And I hope that we will never be the church that a man comes in and he's dressed poorly 
and we scoot over or we don't speak to him because he's the fifth sparrow. He's insignificant. You know, there's a lot of reasons I found out that some people are poor outside of themselves. There wasn't much they could do about it. I remember the man who came in to talk to me, oh, a year, year and a half ago. And he sat down, his face absolutely indicated depression. And as he sat in front of me, he said, you know, Pastor, I've had a hard time all my life. I don't want to complain. But my dad died when I was just a boy. And I had to drop out of school and go to work to support my mother. And I didn't get much education. And I've had to work hard all of my life. And you know what, Pastor? I don't want any welfare. I didn't come here today to even get money from the church. I just want you to pray for me because life is hard. Because, preacher, as hard as I work, I can never make enough money to pay my bills. And I'm always under financial pressure. Will you pray for me and with me? That's poor. Jesus said, the poor you'll always have with you. And the poor fall into that fifth sparrow category. And then there's the lost. Will you turn in your Bible, Psalm 142 in your Bible, and it's verse number 4. And David is writing this as he sits in the cave of Abdullah, and he looks down below him on the floor in the valley high on the side of the mountain is the cave. And Daniel or David looks down. And he sees the armies of Saul pursuing him, hunting him, he said, like he was a, a deer trying to kill him. He's a threat to Saul. And he looks down at them, and he's alone in that cave, and I guess he's overwhelmed emotionally, and he's depressed. And in verse 4, he says, And no man careth for my soul. No man careth for my soul. I'm the fifth sparrow. I'm not worth much. I'm insignificant to the world around me. Nobody cares about my soul. There's a lot of people in Florence can say that. Nobody cares about my soul. Nobody witnesses to me. Nobody's trying to bring me to their church. Nobody's praying for my salvation. Nobody really cares for me that I know about. You know, liberalism in America, I rail against it often. But liberalism has just about destroyed evangelism in America because you know, uh, uh, liberalism has the idea that we're all going to be saved, universalism. Everybody will eventually get to heaven somehow. And that's not true. And liberalism teaches that men and women are really not bad, that they have a divine spark within them, that they're not fallen beings, they're not tainted by sin, that, 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 that liberalism's idea of sin is that it's sociological, that society causes us to be doing the things we're doing. It's all about our environment and the influences of environment that have brought men and women to where they are. And that's not true. You see, your Bible teaches that sin is universal. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Sin is personal. 
that every man or woman is responsible to God for his or her sins, that God's justice and his holiness and his righteousness require God to deal with sin. He must punish sin or he is no longer a just and holy God himself. And that for sin to be paid for, for justice to be done, then blood has to be shed by somebody. And forgiveness is then granted because a life has been paid. And the gospel of Christ that you're so familiar with is that Almighty God sent His only begotten Son to die on a cross and pay for the sins of all of humanity, to pay for every one of our sins in this building watching on television, watching on the internet, wherever you are, whoever you are, whenever you see this, the Lord God loved you, and Jesus poured out every drop of his blood for your sins. You're not insignificant. You're not a fifth sparrow. You're someone that the Son of God gave his life for. And whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That's the gospel of Christ. I think about all the measures that this country did over the last year, year and a half now, to try to deal with this COVID thing. And yet, in spite of that, we closed down our businesses and we're trillions of dollars in debt and We've lost a lot of people, and hundreds of thousands of businesses have been closed, and people's lives, lives have been forever changed. And I think of all the measures that we've done, and yet less than 1% of the people have died. But I read where Jesus Christ looked down at the multitudes of his day, and he said, straight is the gate, and narrow is the way to eternal life. And many there be on that broad road, but few that are on that narrow road. And Jesus talked in terms of the whole world, many and few, many and few. Lots of people lost, not nearly as many people saved. And today, ladies and gentlemen, we can't forget the lost people. I'm forever perennially trying to get you to look out of the walls of this church. And this church does not exist for the people in it solely. Yes, it does partially. But this church's mission, this church's reason to be is that there is a lost world of forgotten people out there. And oh, that God would make us the church that cared about the fifth sparrow. Chapter 12 and verse 8. Jesus said, Whosoever will confess me before men, the Son of Man will also confess before the angels of God. But if you deny me before men, you'll be denied before the angels of God. Is there anybody sitting in in these pews today and you say, you know, I've never confessed Christ. I've never made that decision. I've never come to that point where I heard the gospel. And I clearly decided that moment in time, I'm going to trust Jesus Christ as my Lord, my Savior. And I wonder if there isn't somebody here today and you'd like to do that. 
With our heads bowed, will you stand to your feet, please, quietly and reverently, 